Hello, and welcome to the Go Take Pictures podcast, where we spend time getting to know people who've decided to use photography to communicate in powerful ways. And the question I want to ask, how do they balance making art with being a real person? How does photography fit into their family, their job, struggles, and everyday life? At the end of the conversation, I'm hoping to know where the art comes from and then share that with you. My guest on this episode is Keith Wallach, a wildlife and nature photographer based on the north coast of Oregon. Keith's photographs of birds and other wildlife, as well as his efforts to use his art to further conservation efforts, are really inspiring. We talked about how he made the jump into wildlife photography, how that started his relationship with Olympus, and how he's tackling using social media in some new ways. Maybe most importantly, we talked at length about the ideas of using imagery to give voice to wild animals and how we can protect their habitats. Keith, it is awesome to have you on the podcast. Uh, we have had a chance to hang out in real life, um, to shoot some together, to work on a couple projects together. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah. So um, to give people context, you are out in your home on the Oregon coast, North Oregon coast. Yep. Yeah. Seaside, Oregon. Nice. Um, pretty um, pretty epic place to to live if you're trying to take pictures of wildlife. Yeah, it's pretty insane, you know five steps outside my door i'm at an estuary and i can see bald eagles kingfishers the whole gamut so it's pretty amazing being able to just step outside and be there that is that's pretty uh that's pretty enviable i think is is the right term uh, I, i've heard of at least a few people when i mention oh yeah you know when because I, I had shared some photos that we did together and, people, mm-hmm. and, and i say that's the he lives right there people go, <laughs> <laughs> lucky bastard yeah, it's pretty funny. Uh, everyone asks, oh, where did you shoot that? It's like, I mean, is it wrong if I say my backyard? I mean, you've been here. It's basically <laughs> right. the backyard. So to be clear, uh, if, if you're not familiar with the seaside area, there's a really cool estuary. Um, what what river is it that's coming out through there? It's the Nicanicum River. Okay. So the river mouth empties into the estuary and it's just a giant estuary park that yeah. kind of borders seaside and Gearheart. it's kind of just up north of seaside yeah so to, to be clear you're when keith gave me directions on how to get there i drove up you know we're going through seaside i brought one of my sons came with me to, uh, and and we drove out there and we we drive down to the end of this short road right off right off of highway 101 we get in a parking spot and then we went back to keith's house um, to, uh, download some files and he, he lives on the same street, basically R- kind of right down, right down at the end of the street, right on the, right off the highway. So, um, there's nothing quite like, yeah, do, do I want to go shoot today? Well, you don't really have a good excuse not to. Yeah. You know, that's been a blessing and a curse though, because then I have to hold myself accountable when I say, Oh no, not today. <laughs> or even worse, it rains a lot. But yeah. now that I'm so close, I don't have a choice. Like I can't be like, oh, well, I'm going to be wet all day. I can literally just come home and change my clothes. Right. So now it's like I have no excuses, which has been good because yeah. the amount of work I'm able to produce has been astronomical since we moved out here. Yeah. You don't have a good excuse, but also I it seems like um, prime conditions to end up at the estuary wearing pajamas and hip waders sort of thing. (laughs) I mean, one could make an argument for it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I have, um, 
I grew up in Southern Oregon on the coast and my, um, my mom and my stepdad still live in Coos Bay and they go out, uh, clam digging fairly often. And there's this, okay. there's this one spot in, in Coos Bay, actually in the Bay and it's clam, it's called clam Island. Um, I don't know if that's officially what it's called, but it's, it's what a lot of him and his local friends have called out their whole lives. He's from down there and clam Island. You can only get to by boat cause it's obviously cause it's an Island. Right. But my kids have grown up every time we go down there, we they always ask grandpa, Hey grandpa, is there a, is there a low tide? Can we go out clam digging? And sure enough, yes, but it's, you know, five in the morning. So we're out there, but a lot of times the kids, they don't, they just wear, they're wearing like their pajama pants because they're going to be wearing hip waders the whole time anyway. So I have a visual. This is what I'm imagining is. Uh, That's actually pretty funny. Yeah. Rolling out there in <laughs> <laughs> pajama pants and hip waders. Well, anyway, um, we have, we've talked for a few minutes and we've already alluded to a bit of what you do, but for those who aren't familiar with your work, would you mind telling us, introduce yourself, talk a little bit about uh, your background and where you're from? Yeah, absolutely. I, I grew up in the Bay area, um, kind of East of, uh, San Francisco and I never started doing anything artistic until after college, which was fairly interesting. I was a college baseball player. I grew up outdoors playing sports and that was, you know, my life. Um, a couple of concussions and a few injuries later, sports were no longer an, you know, career option. So, uh, that kind of led down the path of art and, uh, landed myself in art school in Portland and majored in graphic design. And now I work as a designer and a photographer Um, my work kind of centers around wildlife conservation, uh, specifically on the coast. But as I have more time to travel, I would like that to turn into more mammals and, you know, more Yellowstone type ecosystems. That would be nice. You know, if it was my choice, I, I would, I would live in a van and do this full time if I had the choice, but you know, not everything is perfect. So Uh, yeah, right now I'm partnering with a number of different nonprofits to kind of help them get nice imagery for, uh, specifically snowy plovers, um, Mm -hmm. once springtime rolls around and the tufted puffins on top of haystack rock. So those will be two upcoming projects and, you know, anything Olympus throws at me. That's great. That's great. Um, so Olympus, for anybody who uh, kind of follows me or follows your work, you had a chance um, to shoot with one of their brand new lenses here back at the end of 2020. Um, yes. Which is, so, I mean, which is pretty awesome. That's a, a pretty cool opportunity. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Uh, that lens is seriously beyond anything that I could ever dream of, you know, uh, as a wild. Tell us which one it is. Yeah, it's the um, brand new super telephoto they made. It's a 150 to 400 with a built-in 1.25 teleconverter. So you're talking, this is on the micro four thirds platform. So you're talking like, you know, 300 millimeters to a thousand on the long end at 5.6 with the teleconverter That's or 4.5 constant. So, you know, it turns it for me, it was pretty interesting because I shoot with a 300 F4 prime, which translates to a 600. We'll just do full frame equivalents from now on. Um, and so I'm very used to having to back up or move forward 
if I need to zoom, right? Right. And that gets very uh, time consuming, and especially when you're dealing with wild animals that move at the same time you are. You don't have the luxury of like, oh, I'm going to step back 20 feet and hope it stays in the same spot. Exactly. It's not a waterfall. So, you know, having that ability to zoom, it opened up this whole different creative world for me where I was now interested in video. I was able to, you know, shoot through trees and then give a wide angle as well. So it it really gave me a nice tease of what eight grand can get me. <laughs> Yeah, that's the, um, there's a, there's a reason why a lot of people say that wildlife photography is a rich man's game. It is. I mean, look at all of the National Geographic wildlife photographers. They didn't get there because they were given lenses. They got there because of hard work and paying for those lenses. So, you know, it's definitely an investment, but I think that it's one I'm going to have to make at some point. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it would seem, it seemed like in so many ways doing what you do, you already have the body for it. You, you know, you already have the, the, the top end, you know, high end Olympus body for it. What, I mean, you could, you could get by with that and maybe some kind of a mid range zoom and be kind of done. Right. I mean, I have, yeah, I have everything kind of set. Like I have everything from, 14 millimeters to 600. And if I put on a teleconverter or two, I'm at 1200 millimeters at F8. So, you know, I have a very large range I can take on and that's exciting. But having that big of a range all in one lens and not having to switch out teleconverters over and over again. Well, it's really changer. And it's relatively compact and light. Yeah, it's about the size of the Sony 200-600. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, Realistically. It's about, the, it's, about the, it's about the time on the Sony system. So it's it felt like when I was holding your camera, it felt like it was the size, like you said, of the 200-600, but it was like the weight of, it kind of felt more like the 70-200. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. It, it's yeah. a really light lens. They did a really good job not making the hood, you know, extremely heavy. It's all carbon fiber, so it's not one of the Nikon hoods that's, you know, going to weigh you down. Right. But, you know, I I talk about how eight grand is like, oh, that's a huge investment. And it is. But then you talk about, like, what other systems on full frame you'd have to pay for the comparable lens. And you're into the 12s and 13s and 15s. So it's a much different game, but... Uh, you know, that was part of the reason that Olympus was one of the brands that I gravitated towards right. is because you get more reach and more quality imagery at that reach for a lower cost of entry. But the image quality for me is better than what I ever had with Sony. Yeah. So, so talk about that a little bit, because I think that's, I mean, I, you know, I'm shooting Sony full frame and, um, I have never really, I've never used micro four thirds, um, or anything equivalent to that. And I know that there's, you know, I know that there's always that conversation of people are like, Oh, you know, you know micro four thirds, it's a little sensor, but they have, there's so many different te- pieces of technology that they're using and, and employing 
to get really, uh, really high quality imagery. I know you sell prints and of course you've got stuff out on the web and you've got some things that you're, you know, that you're, that you're putting out there at high res. Talk, would you talk about that quality and, and how Olympus fits into that for you? Cause I yeah, mean, obviously definitely. being able to have that extra reach is, is a thing. I mean, that's a big deal, but I'm, I'm curious, how does that whole picture look to you? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because I started my entire photographic journey on a crop sensor Nikon, right? Mm -hmm. Then I ended up moving to a Canon full frame. Then I ended up on Sony's full frames and all of them felt like I was progressing higher and higher, which, you know, image quality does that. Right. And then something happened where I realized I wanted to shoot wildlife and a 70 to 200 on Sony just wasn't cutting it. Right. And so it, it turned into looking for a solution to solve that problem mm -hmm. and pause. I'm about to get the hiccups. <laughs> Give me a you second. Need somebody just come in and scare you. No, I just need to hold my breath for like 25 seconds. Fair enough. When we were getting rolling, I accidentally texted the Zencaster link to my friend Chris Onstott instead of you because I was texting <laughs> with him earlier. Um, I really wish he would have clicked it and just popped in randomly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris is, um, if you don't know him, you should um, look up him and his work. Look up Nashco okay. when you get a chance. Nashco Photography. Um, Chris Onstott and Leah Nash. They are commercial photographers here in Portland. And oh, cool. Yeah, they're I'll insanely talented. Anyway, I'm gonna I'm buying a pair of Profoto B a B1 and a B1X from him for two. Grand. Oh, awesome! That's not a horrible deal though. A B1X costs twenty five hundred new. Yeah, and I'm buying a B1X and the older B1 and four batteries and the chargers. That's killer. I think I'm gonna maybe sell my B10 once I get Is that those a smaller one. Yeah, that's the no, that's the big one. That's the the studio light one. Oh, oh okay. Or I might sell the B1 that he's, sell, that he's selling me. I don't know. We'll, we'll see if it's which one's more useful. Yeah. Okay. Let's Pick up that gone? question again. Yeah. Okay. What did I even ask? Oh, you, you were talking about, I was asking about Olympus and how it fits into all of the things and how, ah, how right. image quality. Yeah. So, you know, it it's an interesting way of looking at it because when I was shooting Sony and I had to crop in for wildlife, you know. What I, body were you using? I was on the R3. Okay. So what's that? That's 42 megapixels. So, you know, I was shooting wider, but I was able to retain some detail and still right. get, you know, close in, but it was cropped 80, 90, 100, 120% every single time. So then how many megapixels are really in the image? Now you're only looking at 18 to 20. Right. So when I switched to Olympus going from, cropping that heavily to virtually never cropping in the first place, I'm retaining all of the data on my 20 megapixel sensor Sure. in relation to deleting three quarters of the data on every photo. So, you know, while it doesn't, it's hard to talk about sensors without, you know, playing that, oh, I'm on full frame game. Well, there's other things and that play into it, it, right? There's so much that goes into it. And to this day, I can tell you that, I have never shot crisper, cleaner, and less noisy images with anything other than Olympus. Nice. Even landscape. 
And it's simply because of the technologies they have to reduce noise. They have the technologies where low light is, I mean, I shoot at 6,400 ISO routinely and it's like I'm shooting at 1,200. Nice. And so, you know, I hate how there's so much talk about sensor size. Right. Because use what sensor makes your work sing the most, right? Yeah. It If you're, you know, a fine art photographer that's shooting these amazing enormous wall-sized prints okay yeah maybe you go medium format you know Mm -hmm. use all of the data you can but when you're talking about wildlife unless you're putting these images in a gallery wall that you have to blow up past 30 by 40 inches which is not very often you don't need 60 megapixels yeah just not it's senseless i was listening to a podcast yesterday um, um, there's a, a YouTube filmmaker, um, named Chris Howe, and mm-hmm. he was talking about that a bunch of commercial work that he's done that are for very large, you know, car makers. So a lot of his images were shot on the Sony a7S two, which is a yeah. 10, me- 10 megapixel sensor. <laughs> and so and even though it's full helps. frame, <laughs> it's still super low res from a, modern sensor you know ideal what people think about and he said the the reality is that instagram and facebook and those kinds of the native sizes for those is like two megapixels Mm -hmm. so you're already you know you know eight you know five six seven eight times larger than you actually need for most for most purposes you know for, for digital stuff and you know thinking about that in a wildlife sense it's very interesting because what's what's the one thing wildlife photographers, nature photographers want to get published in. Yeah. Magazines, magazine, right? Right. You're not blowing anything up more than eight by 11 and a half. Well, and the reality is if you're sending it to a magazine, they're going to up it for whatever they need to do with it anyway. Most times they're going to down res it. Yeah, exactly. They just exactly. don't have the capacity to print. Magazines print on extremely thin, fine paper with horrible image quality. Right, right. So it, <laughs> To think that you need 60 megapixels to do that is just backwards to me. Save your sensor size, save your megapixels, and shoot at my 60 frames per second without a buffer. Right. I'll trade that any day of the week. Right, right. No, that makes sense. Um, It doesn't make me not want to have my 60 megapixels. well, right, but for the work but, you do, <laughs> but it, that's a different thing. But honestly, half the time I don't need. Half the time I wish that my camera had a lower res version, a lower res res mode. And the, the you know the newest, the newest Sony hotness has a low res mode. The and A1, I, the A1, yeah. Okay, um, you can shoot at a, a lower res resolution mode that doesn't crop. It just it just shoots lower res, huh. which is really cool. And I wish I could do that because there's so many you know, times where I'm like, man, I 20 to 30 megapixels would be awesome. Um, right. Especially like when I, when photography. I, yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. So that's cool. I love, I love hearing that because I, I think that in so many ways, even more than the fact that you don't you know, that the resolution isn't an issue, it's, it's, it has a lot to do with the, it's the right tool. It's designed really well for what you do. It's, they really have catered well to that wildlife 
uh, niche. They they really have designed some some gear that's has amazing weather sealing, has super mm-hmm. long reach, has amazing in body stabilization. So you just it kind of becomes these are all things that you know the large a larger sensor is actually not an advantage when you're talking about image sta- image stabilization. Right. I mean, so. let's talk about image stabilization here for a second. The other day, I found a great horned owl, and it was moonlight at this point. Mm-hmm. I had been done shooting for the day. I was walking back to the car, and there's an owl. Like, I don't have my tripod. I don't have lights. I don't have anything. Let's see what happens. I shot that thing at half a second handheld, mm-hmm. and it's tack sharp. Wow. Cool. And that's, there's, there's no business being able to do that. That's not the, the proof is in the pudding, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's really cool. Okay. So your wildlife photography thing career, um, has taken off really fast. Um, when I, when you and I first met and started hanging out, um, it was not even like two years ago. Mm-hmm. And I know that that wildlife thing was just an inkling. You, you, you had just maybe just started it and talk about how did you get into, you know, why birds, why animals and, and how did you get started along those lines? Yeah. So it's funny you bring up like when we first met, because it wasn't soon after that, that you, me and a bunch of our other photography buddies including Desi, went to Cape Disappointment. See, I didn't come on that trip. You didn't come on that trip. Nope, nope. I was totally so, bummed that I didn't, but... Right, right. <laughs> that's what it was. And that so, was a That was a go-away party for Josh Paris. That's right. That's yeah. right. And that was the day that I met Desi for the first time. Mm. And... We had gotten talking, and at this point, I was not even remotely shooting wildlife yet. Okay. It was just in my head, but I couldn't do it. I didn't have the gear. And um, I got talking with Desi, and he showed me some of his wildlife images, talked to me about Olympus, and I was like, ah, shit. Well, now I know what I have to do. And so I kid you not, three days later, I sold all of my Sony stuff and bought into Olympus. Wow. And I'd be lying if I didn't say to myself, like, what am I doing? Like, did I really just sell everything I own? But I did. And it was honestly the best decision I've ever made. And so moving forward, I kind of dove into what was around me. Right. And at that point, this is about a year and a half ago. And I was around birds. I was around, you know, I was living in Portland at the time. So there's not a whole lot of mammals out there. I mean, we get coyotes, right? But when are you seeing them in our neighborhood? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. We we don't have a lot of of outdoor cats in my neighborhood. We'll put it that way. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Um, But you know, they're always out at night. So where, when are you going to shoot them? And so it was birds and I ended up going to Savi Island one time and saw Osprey for the first time and just immediately fell in love with bird photography. And as things kind of progressed, it turned into so much more than just taking that picturesque 
photo of an eagle catching a fish and it turned into more of like how do i become a voice for this wildlife and these Mm -hmm. birds that literally just can't speak for themselves sure and it kind of came full circle i can kind of pinpoint when i was like oh yep this is what i need to do this is who i'm gonna be this is how it's gonna work and i was up on mount rainier and I saw a fox. It's like, whoa, first mammal. <laughs> yeah. And so my wife and I pull off the side of the road and we kind of give it its space and we're just kind of watching it, making sure that, you know, we're not getting too close, that we're being ethical. Right. And so I pull out all of my gear. I get everything all situated. We, we weren't expecting to shoot wildlife there. We were just going to go to Mount Rainier, right? Right, right. And obviously I brought all of my equipment, but as one does. Right. And <laughs> <laughs> so we we were looking at this fox and then we discovered something pretty awful and that was that it was begging for food yeah. on the side of the road. Right. And I'm sure you've seen this same fox. Mm-hmm. It's locally known as Whitefoot. Yeah. And what I didn't know when I photographed it is that it's actually a critically endangered species of fox. Right. And it's the Cascade Red Fox. They're a subspecies of the Red Fox, and they only live at high altitudes in the North Cascades. Right. And it wasn't until I posted the photo that a nonprofit reached out and was like, I, where'd you find this? Like, this is a species we're monitoring and blah, blah, blah. And that's when it clicked. I was like, okay, now I have a reason. This is what I was meant to do. And so that's what I've been chasing ever since. I think that's, that's a, thank you for sharing that part of the story. Cause I think that's a really important, so much of our current culture of outdoor photography, whether it be landscape or wildlife, it kind of centers around this idea of I'm going to go find the thing and I'm going to take a picture of it. Um, right. And, and oftentimes without a lot of thought for how does my taking a picture of it affect it? How do, whether, whether that be negative or positive. Um, so that's, that's a really interesting angle to kind of think. Right. About this. And you know, it, it goes back to the age old quote and I don't know who said it. It still always slips my mind, but there's somebody that said photographing wildlife. You have to keep one thing in mind. It's not about what the animal can do for you. It's about what you can do for the animal. Hmm. And I always have to keep that in my head because it's kind of a double-edged sword in a sense, because I make a living off of these, you know, animals that I photograph, but at the same time, I want to make sure that I'm doing it for the right reasons. Sure. And so there's a lot of, talk about wildlife photography ethics right now, because as I'm sure you've seen the whole controversy around David Yarrow, right. Um, getting caught baiting a Fox in Yellowstone. Right. And you know, yeah, this, I was going to ask you about that. Cause that's, that was, oh, perfect. I, mean, this, I could talk about this for ago. hours. Right. I mean, um, this is just a few weeks ago, right? I mean, yeah. This is yeah. Not... I mean, it couldn't have been more than three, three and a half weeks ago. And it, it's just terrible. And you know, Unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me 
this isn't the first time that he's done things like this. This isn't the first time that, you know, a photographer has done things like this. And it just so happens that a guy like David Yarrow can hide under this shadow of conservation because he donates so much money to nonprofits that are doing some good. Right. But that's all it is, is a shadow because he's not doing any of it for that reason. He's doing it to monetize it. So you don't, what does it, what does it look like to you then to do that? I mean, just, you know, that sucks, right? I mean, that's just an awful thing. What does the opposite side look like? What does it look it, like to use your photography for good? To protect these spaces, right, to help. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's how do we educate around your photography? You know, for me, it's less about, okay, scratch that. It's not less about how the picture looks because how the picture looks is very important. But it, for me, it's less about that and more about the story. If I can share a story with you and get you to take five seconds out of your day to research what is wrong with this species and why it's going extinct, then I've done some good. Mm -hmm. Me taking that photo has turned into someone else taking some action. Right. And That to me, that is where wildlife photography, birding, conservation, and just ethics all kind of collide into one giant ball of stuff that everyone is so afraid to talk about. Right. And we shouldn't be because it's something that we need to have an open conversation about and no one's willing to talk about it. Okay. So unpack that a little bit. Um, you say nobody wants to talk about it, but I mean, what does that look like to you? Well, to me, I'm the one that's always talking about it. So to me, it just looks like frustration because I feel like I'm talking to a brick wall half the time. Why do you feel like people don't want to talk about it? I think it's, you know, it's hard to say when you're talking to a photographer that doesn't care about it. I think it's probably because they're on the other side. They want to use the stuff to their advantage and they don't really care what how or what happens to the species that they're shooting Mm -hmm. but the general public i think it's just an out of sight out of mind thing you know Mm -hmm. especially if you look at metropolitan areas they don't see animals every day i mean i have elk in my backyard every other morning Right, right so like i'm surrounded by it and it's part of my career but for somebody that is say a tech person in the Silicon Valley, ask me the, or ask them the last time they saw a wild animal and it's not going to be very frequent. Right. So I think it's always don't count. Right. No, they don't. (laughs) And so it's got to be just an out of sight, out of mind thing. And, you know, granted, I think it's hard to speculate on that right now because of what we're living in. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's so much more important stuff going on in the world right now than supporting your local wildlife. But at the same time, this is the point where a lot of people are looking for things to do during their day. Oh, yeah. So go out yeah. and enjoy it. Yeah. No, it's it's an interesting um yeah, that's definitely an interesting angle on this, on, on how this stuff goes. I, I think that, to, to be straight up, I hadn't thought about 
this in the same way, but, but I've thought about this regarding landscape and, and, and areas that are over visited. Mm-hmm. I think about that all the time, you know, so much so that I'm working on, I'm, I'm in the beginning planning pitching stages for a documentary for that I'm going to do this year. That's specifically about an area that's over visited and undermanaged. Right. Um, and, and in the same, I think it's, it's very similar. The idea that, um, I mean, this sounds maybe kind of crude, but you know that people f- always talk about fighting sexual trafficking by saying and, and by saying, imagine that it's that it's this is someone's daughter, right? Right. And and the reason why, and then people go, well, how about you just imagine they're a human? But I think that the reason why that kind of phrase is powerful when it comes to conservation, it comes to thinking about how do we preserve the way of life for wildlife and, and, and wild places is because if you can't see it as something that's meaningful, if you can't make some kind of connection to it, if you, if you can't internalize or personalize it somewhere, it's going to be really difficult for you to, to think about it when it's not right in front of your face. Right. And I think that is where imagery and education kind of live. And that's where a photographer like me or like any other wildlife photographer that's doing it for the right reasons can actually have an impact because Mm -hmm. if we can just get people to relate to these things, then maybe they take five minutes out of their day to research why X is bad for foxes. Right. And so, you know, it's hard. And I think there's so much that goes into it because, you know, you talk to, people that live in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and wolves are a big problem for ranchers, but wolves are extremely vital to the ecosystem. Right. So are we going to talk about the environmental impacts of having the wolves there and the amazing steps of progress that it's led to, or are we going to talk about the, you know, ranchers that have, no choice but to kill the wolves because they're killing the livestock. Oh yeah. And it turns into this political issue. Well, I just saw something today uh, on Twitter talking about some that were like 300 wolves picked off in like a 72 hour period or something like that. During Are you talking of, about in uh, Minnesota? I don't, I'm not sure where I, I don't remember. Cause I, I literally just saw it in kind of in my, in the side kind of sidebar on Twitter today, but I'll have to look it up and see. I I don't know if this is what you're referring to, but they opened up a wolf season recently out okay. there. And, you know, they're, people are bringing in more wolf kills than the quota. Yeah. So to me, that's a huge problem. But, you know, I think that that's another very interesting topic in the world of conservation is that you have one side that says, okay, we shouldn't hunt, but I don't necessarily agree with that. Right. I, will I ever shoot an animal? No, not unless it's with a camera lens, but at the same time, hunters are generally speaking, some of the most conservation minded people out there, right? Because if they don't conserve the resources, there's nothing there to hunt. Yeah, I think so, if you lean if you lean into 
there is a there's a certain kind of hunter you know the kind of you know the certainly the big game trophy hunting uh right you know, that's a C- different thing when entirely. ceos get in trouble for hunting uh endangered species in africa that's one thing and then you know i grew up in a really small town in oregon and we grew up you know we had a big chest freezer and we would you know we would hunt and we we'd put an elk in there and that would be our quote unquote beef for the year right you know and, and everybody like tons of people that i grew up with they didn't really buy a lot of beef. They generally ate a lot of venison, so that's deer, mm-hmm. and a lot of elk um, throughout the year. And but that was very much um, it was handled with a sense of care that you know right. you, you're not you're not out there just kind of killing indiscriminately. And there's an honor and a um, a way that you approach things that is maybe more primal. You know, the more like the you're gonna go and stock something and not just harvest something, right? And um, which is you know kind of an interesting. I don't hunt anymore, but that was something that was a big deal when I was growing up. And I I I agree. I find that a lot of my you know a lot of my friends that still hunt, there is something sacred about it. Not um, not just I get to do this, but this is part of human heritage, right? And that and they're partaking in it that way. Yeah, and it's an interesting topic because, you know, there are definitely the hunters that are problems, obviously. Right. Trophy hunting is horrible. Poaching is horrible. Like, that's an aside. Right. But the people that do it to feed their family for the year, that's a good thing. Right. Not to mention it keeps the elk population in control, which keeps the wolf population in control, which helps other things and other things and other things, and it's a cascading effect. Right. So, you know, without hunting... There'd be a whole lot more conservation problems just in a different way. Right. Which is, you know, if it's not, and and it's not just about us hunting. If you think about when we mess with animal populations, it messes up their hunting, which causes, which can cause imbalances. Exactly. So, you know, there's no, (laughs) there's no winning here. There's an, there's an interesting one that I was thinking about. Um, There's a, somebody that I'm going to have to get on the podcast here at some point, um, Brian Butler. Um, he's a filmmaker that I just, my friend Sarah connected me with him and I'm hoping to work with him on this documentary project this year, but he did a, a documentary about a controlled hunt in Grand Teton that was very, a very special hunt where they were hunting, um, mountain goats that are oh, that are an, they're an invasive species in the national park right and and so they 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 crowd out and they're crowding out the bighorn sheep yeah and it's and causing bighorn. territorial problems so one of the goals of national forests uh, and and national parks is that they are charged with preserving things as they are Right. So that so they have to keep invasive species at bay, and so they brought in. Uh, there was a lottery for people to come in and basically do a, what they call a cull, and right. the the idea was to kind of scare them and drive them out of the of the park area. But it was really interesting because he actually accompanied them for like six days backpacking, like hardcore backpack hunting. Must be a really interesting. Thing. Oh, it's I'll I'll um I'll have to send you the link um to and I'll maybe even. It's not related to this podcast, but we're talking about it, so I'll probably throw it in the show notes. But um, he actually filmed the whole video for them, and That's awesome. it's up on YouTube. It's it's fantastic. Uh, I'll um, have to look into it. 
That sounds interesting. So the, where do you want to see your wildlife? I mean, you already kind of hinted a little bit about the stuff that you, stuff that interests you in the future. You know, you talked about mammal, large mammal uh, photography, but what, what is interesting to you both for personal reasons, but also from a conservation standpoint, what, what stuff do you want to photograph and why and, and how? Yeah. I, you know, I have a pipe dream of photographing endangered species for nonprofits to actually protect them. Mm -hmm. And I can utilize this imagery to evoke emotion so that people can actually do what they need to do. Right. But that's a very hard industry to get into simply because there's not enough animals to photograph to get access to them. You know, with there, there's a specific owl in Oregon, and I'm sure when you were growing up here, there was probably 300% more of them. Uh, it's the northern spotted owl. Oh, yeah. I, and, Keith, I grew up in logging country on the south, right. southern Oregon coast. So this is all, I mean, yeah. you know. It. The spotted owl was a big controversy when I was Exactly. And so, you know, I, I actually ran into a guy this morning when I was out birding. And we got talking and he's part of the spotted owl survey team out mm-hmm. here. And they've found 35 barred owls in two weeks and zero spotted owls. Wow. And, you know, that's only half the problem. Logging was the big problem, right? We all know that mm-hmm. the habitat got destroyed, but the even bigger problem now because now we're you know practicing better regenerative kind of logging and things like right. that i mean that's a different topic that i don't even want to get into oh, that's a... <laughs> logging is not where i want to hang my hat but um you know the the problem right now is that barred owls they're invasive they're not a sure. native species to oregon and do i photograph barred owls absolutely they're pretty easy to find and they're gorgeous but they're a problem and they're taking over spotted owl territory. So, you know, that's a specific project I'd love to work on is Mm -hmm. finding the spotted owls and photographing them, you know, from a safe distance ethically and, you know, all of that and doing it for the right reasons, because that's a species that truly needs help. Like really, really quickly too. Um, you know, well, it's an interesting but, long story too, because it right. it does have such a deep history here in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, on another scale, I, I I would love to work with a project that goes out into Manitoba and photographs polar bears mm-hmm. and raises the awareness around that. Because realistically, if I don't shoot polar bears in the next 10, 15 years, I don't know if I ever will. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of where I want my work to go. That's, that's the pipe dream is how do I get involved with the right people, get involved with the right expeditions and teams to actually produce the kind of content that can be used in campaigns that will help these animals. Right. And you know, that's, that's a hard game to get into just simply from a sheer numbers aspect, not to mention 90% of the species that I'd want to cover are federally protected. So getting to them is pretty difficult. Right, right. <laughs> well, and also you're talking about working with nonprofits, which notoriously have almost no budget. 
Right. So how, and then that brings into question, how do I monetize that? Right. And that's where there's a steep hill to climb, so to speak, because I want to do it for the right reasons, which are to help the nonprofit help the species. Right. Right. But how do I do that without making enough money to go on these trips and get the right equipment and do all the things? Right. So that's something I'm still trying to figure out how to monetize wildlife to the point where it feels moral. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Okay. So switching gears a little bit. So, um, one of the things that, that I, I, you know, having knowing enough about you and we, we've actually worked together in, in the capacity of your other job, your other work that you do. Right. Um, I would love, so, cause obviously you mentioned, you mentioned wanting to figure out a way to monetize this stuff and, and a way for it to be a, an actual career where it, and I, it, wildlife photography is a really hard gig, right? I mean, that's a really difficult thing to, Absolutely. You, you don't get to stay home a lot if, if you're, you know, if you're trying to chase this kind of stuff no, uh, and make money off of it. Would you talk a little bit about your, you know, quote unquote day gig and how that all kind of fits together? Yeah. So I'm a senior designer at, oddly enough, a camera lens company. Um, And so, you know, it's kind of opened me up to working from home. And, you know, that was kind of the blessing in disguise over the last year or two is that I transitioned from a very corporate kind of gig to, you know, designing for a company that you know, has some interest of mine in photography and I can work at home and remotely from anywhere I want. So it opened up a lot more time for me to actually go shoot. Mm -hmm. And for example, you know, before we moved out to the coast, I was out on the coast probably twice a week. And you know, as well as I do driving out to the coast twice a week to photograph is a lot of driving. And if you're going to try to be there at the right time of day, exactly. You're waking up at 4am and that's not fun for anyone. Right. So, you know, it, I love that I have a job like I do that is flexible enough to where I can say shoot in the morning before 9am and come back home and work. And so, you know, in some sense it has, excuse me, opened me up to more photography in another sense, it's opened up this, I'm designing something that I'm passionate about right. finally in my career. And it's kind of like, you know, I'll go week to week and like one week I'll be more into the designing and like, eh, I don't want to shoot this week. And like, I just design, design, design. Right. And then I'm like, okay, I need a break from that. Let's tone it down a little. And so, you know, it's, it's been nice. I, I wish there was, you know, obviously more trajectory for me on the wildlife photography side, but as you already mentioned, that's a very tough lifestyle and it's a very tough gig to get into, especially, you know, I'm, I'm married. We have a dog there. There's other parts of the equation that (laughs) aren't going to allow me to live out of a van in Yellowstone for eight months out of the year. Exactly. So, you know, it, there's a lot of other things that go into a decision like, you know, 
just dropping everything and going into wildlife full time. Well, I think oftentimes, and I, don't, I, I may have mentioned this in some <clears throat> in some sense on the podcast in previous episodes, but I think there's a glamorization of hey, you know, people always talk about I'm gonna you know I'm gonna go full time, or I'll see somebody's Instagram and it says full time camera icon, you know, full time photographer, and right. it's not to criticize somebody who says that, <clears throat> but it's it's to say it's really easy to talk about. I want to have a career. I want to make money doing this without really thinking about what, what is, what are the real world ramifications of that? Because if you're going to be, you know, I mean, here's a good example. I don't know that there's any more well-known example than like Paul Nicklin, Um, you know, Paul, Paul Nicklin and Christina Mittermeier, right? Yeah. They're, they're literally the epitome of everything and they're married to each other. Yeah. I know. It's just like, (laughs) And they both had, please. Yeah. And they both had like these amazing careers before, before they were, you know, the power couple. And, um, it's kind of wild to think about the idea that that's a really amazing career. And yet it's completely inaccessible for most people because you have a normal life, right? You, You know, you're not married to somebody who also is hardcore, you know, and I know your wife's been out there shooting with you, um, and is pulling off some pretty good shots herself, but at the same time, you know, you're not, you can't just like go live in a van for eight months because you have a right. regular job too. And Granted, I could work my regular job from a you, van. You it totally could be very fun. <laughs> exactly. Um, I say that being somebody who can say, okay, yeah, I'm a professional photographer. I, I don't have another job, but man, you know, my work, I mean, you know what yeah. I've done and, and. Um, if anybody isn't, hasn't watched my account close enough to see Keith and I work together because Keith works at lens baby and lens baby is, I came in and shot product photography for lens baby, which is totally not landscape adventure photography. It's not the thing that I'm trying to do. It's, it's not the thing that people go, I want to be, I want to be a full-time pro like full-time pro. What you going to go take pictures of waterfalls professionally. Because yeah, who's going to pay you for that? <laughs> you know, it's it's so interesting you bring up the like, you know, let's call it a faux pas of saying like full-time photographer. And yeah. like, just because you're a full-time photographer doesn't necessarily mean that's your only gig. I mean, if I'm being honest with right. you, I'm putting in 80, 85 hour weeks. Like if I'm coupling together how much time I spend exactly. shooting and building my wildlife career and my day job. Right. So yeah, I'm a full-time photographer, but I'm also a full-time senior graphic designer. Exactly. So like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just funny to think about when there, there is such a, I don't know if you would call it a stigma, but like, there's this thing around yeah. like the people that can say they're a full-time photographer, but you brought up a very good point. Show me you're a full-time photographer. Don't tell it to me. Yeah, that that sounds like a TikTok, uh, a TikTok trending. Uh, show me that. <laughs> oh, don't get me started on TikTok. I'm not talking about it. Okay, um, if, <laughs> though you're not going to talk about it, you're one All of right, the. I'll only, talk about it. I'll talk about it a little bit. You're one of the only um, photographers that I know of that has an an actual real presence and real engagement on TikTok. So yeah, it you know maybe this, there's a few more, but I don't I don't follow them and I don't see them. And to be clear, be, every time I go on TikTok, all it wants to show is it, it just wants to show me girls shaking their boobs. That's no, all seriously, it wants to show no, that's all TikTok is. But <laughs> 
like, here, here's the thing. I made it out of a joke, like, because my wife was like, oh, what happens if you throw some photography on TikTok? I'm like, I don't want to do it. I'm like, I, I'm not that. I, I no, Right. And so what started out as like a, oh, just throw some photography up there, see if it sticks, kind of exploded in one and a half months to almost 9,000 followers. And I've sold more prints off TikTok wow. than I've ever sold on Instagram ever. All That's in crazy. a month and a half. And, you know, it it's hard for me because I don't want to be proud of that. <laughs> like I, I don't want to be the TikTok wildlife photographer, but you know, on the other hand, like I'm not getting that kind of growth on any other social application. Why do you think that is? Like I like because here's the thing. Okay, I I got on TikTok and I dropped a few posts. You know, basically, I know a lot of a lot of times people take their TikTok content and they dump it into the reel section That's of real. Instagram. Right. I did it the opposite. I already had stuff in reels on Instagram. And so I dumped that stuff on a TikTok. And then of course you jumped in, you're the only comment and you're like, Dan has a TikTok. And, <laughs> but I don't, I don't get it. I, and I, and I'm genuinely curious whether you're proud of it or not. Why, why is it working? Do you have any idea? Why you know, I do know why it's working and it's because I do this kind of thing in my day job. Like okay. I have to know marketing for my day job and I have to know yeah. social marketing and like building content for brands for that stuff. Yeah. So I kind of just applied that to myself in a way, but no, to be quite honest with you, there is no rhyme or reason why people blow up on TikTok. It just like, I posted an owl video and like, you got to think, right? You mentioned it. TikTok for you, your for you page is just girls shaking things. Yeah. And literally that literally that's, it's, that's, that's almost exclusively what it is. You got to like some more photography content so that your algorithm find changes. It. That's the problem is I can't find it. <laughs> but so, yeah, you know, I think the reason that. Oh, wait, I, I have to say the more reason why I was on there in the first place is because my kids are on there. I'm uh, on there to, to monitor. Nice, huh? I'm on there to monitor them. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I think that the reason it's starting to do somewhat decently is honestly because there's not a lot of that on there. Hmm. And so people somehow see it and I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a reason they're seeing it. They're seeing it because I know I had to do all this research for work and I know how to formulate the hashtags so that people see it. Hmm. So, you know, it just so happens that that algorithm is a lot easier to crack than Instagram's. Yeah. So yeah. whether people are viewing my content because it just pops up because I hashtag something to completely unrelated to what is in the video or not, it it's being seen. Yeah. yeah. And I think that it might be a happy contrast to what's generally on there. Oh yeah, but for sure. Well, and also on who you're talking to. Well, I've heard a lot of that kind of thing where people say, Hey, you know what? Well, it also would seem like every fifth, um, TikTok on there, every, every fifth post I see is somebody saying, all you have to do is use the trend, one of these trending musics right. and that trending will... sound and a trending hashtag and you're golden. Yeah. Yeah. Which is but, crazy. Cause that's kind of how Instagram used to work. <laughs> yeah. Back before it went to crap. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, but, that, that's totally interesting. Okay. So 
another TikTok question. Oh boy. No, just a little one because this is something I'm curious about. And this is going to, this can apply to all other platforms. But one of the things you've done is you've put together, you know, TikTok is primarily a video platform. Right. And you have, one of the things I've noticed is that it seems like you have really, you've kind of, you have a style that you've put together in this little vertical, these little vertical video clips. Tell me about, is that something you had to kind of like piece through, uh, how to do that? Or is that something that was just kind of natural to you? So it was not natural. I'll tell you that. Uh, nothing about TikTok is natural for me. Uh, you know, even talking on this podcast, listening to myself talk is not in my comfort zone. I, I have no problem public speaking at all, but when it's over like the internet and I can't like see facial expressions and like feed off that, like, right. you know, it, it's so awkward for me and I hate hearing, I seriously doing the voiceovers for those TikTok videos. I have to shut myself in my office and not even tell my wife I'm doing them because I don't even want her in the room. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it's a very, it, it's been eye opening. I, yeah. you know, and to answer your question, um, the video stuff kind of just happened. I, I never shot video prior to getting that lens from Olympus to yeah. test out for them. And so as this TikTok thing ended up happening as you roll um, your eyes nobody can yeah, see that you know, but I, well okay at least you're narrating it yeah. so you know as, as the whole tiktok thing happened i you know slowly started building in more video content but i i refuse to create videos vertically on purpose mm-hmm. <laughs> because i just can't bring myself to say that i'm recording this for the sole purpose of tiktok sure so, Makes sense. well, and I, I will throw out, so the, the project I was alluding to is I came out and documented you with that lens. Right. And we shot some video, which I, we, you know, I turned it into a little clip that I shared on my stuff, but then I had to edit it for vertical so that I could, right. so we could share it all those places. And it's really hard to do. It's when not easy, huh? When you didn't shoot vertical, it's hard to crop and get things because how you shot it in large part de- determines, you know, your framing and you don't right. want to leave stuff out. That's important. So I know. And that's, that's my biggest problem with TikTok is because I, the nine by 16 ratio for my photos, even it mm. it's, it's like, I'm always cropping something out that I don't want to crop out. Right. You know, some photos work better than others, obviously, but you know, for the vast majority, I'm like, Oh, do I really want to do this? <laughs> but <laughs> You know, it's interesting because I'm kind of at this point, because I'm still not going to say I'm happy about being on TikTok. I'm treating it as a science experiment. Okay. Because I just have to think about it like that. And I tested something out the other day where I actually shot vertically. Okay. I I don't, ge- like I'm talking photos. I don't yeah, generally yeah. turn my camera vertical just okay. because like as a wildlife photographer, it's all about speed. Yeah. You know, I can miss the shot of a lifetime just by turning my camera vertically. So I, I turned it vertically for 10 minutes maybe. Yeah. And it just so happens that the photos I took from that, put it on a video and it has over 80,000 views. There you go. And I'm like, well, great. Well, and now you're, that's the same conundrum though, that everybody's been dealing with, with Instagram. Right. Because you, you find that, 
you start to look through your catalog and you realize that everything starts to be vertical because when you shoot, when you post vertical shots on Instagram, they actually do better. Right. They do. And it's just simply because people's is so, you know, I'm a designer in my day job. Part of my job is to audit and make websites. And we actually talked about this a couple of days ago. The average attention span on a screen is less than two seconds. Yeah. So it's just the more image you take up on the screen, the better. Right. That's all it is. And if it's on the screen longer. Because right. <laughs> it takes them longer to scroll past it. No, but that's honestly the reason. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it sounds so trivial because, you know, who who's gonna, you know, do that? Shouldn't it just be based off how good your work is? Well, unfortunately it's kind of not. Yeah. But social media is an animal that I just it's I don't like it, but it's a sure. necessary evil. I was just going to say that exact phrase. I think I feel like it's if you can figure out a way to view it as hey, this is a place I put things where people are going to people are spending time, but don't let it become the thing that drives the art. Don't let it, right. you know, don't let don't let the platform and the format you know, make you behave differently in terms of how you make the art. Exactly. And it, it's interesting because if you look at my Lightroom catalog, I have virtual copies of every single photo I edit that is um, vertical and one is horizontal like normal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Really cool, man. Well, we are, we're coming down to coming up to about an hour and I would love to um, first of all, ask who else should we be talking to on this podcast? Like who, what kind of, what people would you like to hear more from or what, what people do you know of that uh, you think would be a great fit? Yeah. You know, I, I think some more of the Olympus shooters would be awesome. I've, I've already, mean, you're the third one. I already talked to Alexa. Oh, and you Desi. did talk to Alexa uh-huh. too. Yeah. Alexa that, was episode one. That see, that's interesting. You, you've done almost more uh, four thirds sensors than full frame sensors. Well, I, that being said, I've also talked to Nate Luby and Autumn Schrock, who are both uh, Sony Alpha Collective, <laughs> okay, and um, and Chris Orwig, who's a Sony artisan. So uh, I'm trying to keep it equal opportunity. <laughs> but with that said, I mean, you should get Paul Nicklin on. That would be just, <laughs> yeah. I do have some connections on the Sony team, so I'm, we'll see if... I'm kind of if small peanuts right that, now. I want to be a guest on there. There we go. Yeah. We'll get a panel. Um, but no, you should uh, reach out to Brooke Bartelson. She's a yeah. megafauna photographer for Olympus. And um, another guy, Ben Newt. He's a birding guy as well. Uh, oh, cool. Both have a lot of interesting perspectives. Um, she actually just helped launch a um, wildlife collective kind of website and social channel around uh saving polar bears so a lot of talk about you know wildlife ethics and stuff like that as well so they're both good people to get in touch with very cool okay i'll I'll have to reach out to him and uh i'll copy you on the uh (laughs) when i reach out and say keith says you have to do this Uh, (laughs) i don't listen to me (laughs) well the olympus i mean it seems like a pretty tight crew so it uh, is you know i I've made a lot of good friends through it. it it's right. been great. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an Olympus fan, but for, for different, um, 
reasons my first film SLR was an Olympus OM-1. Those were and amazing. I still, and I still have it. As you should. Don't get rid of that. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. I, uh, so yeah. Okay. So Keith, tell, um, what is the best place? Where would you want to send people to look at more of your work, both, um, prints, conservation, all of that stuff. Um, definitely not TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, you can find that if you want, but I'm not going to tell you what it's called. Um, you think I'm not going to put it in the show notes? No, please don't. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're going to anyway, though. Uh, uh, I can respect your wishes. They can no, find you. I, I think for the most kind of story related things go on my website. Uh, but for, you know, just staying current, Instagram is probably the place to be simply because it has the most amount of content. Cool. Well, I'll link, yeah. I'll link Instagram and the website, but not TikTok. When I no, just it link it because now <laughs> I'm going to get people asking me for it. Well, to be clear, I want you to share it on TikTok, the, the podcast episode. So we, we, we can't oh, talk right. too bad about TikTok, right? I mean, uh, I, mean I guess, but <laughs> I don't know how you want me to convert this to a vertical video. You can do that part. <laughs> exactly. Well, cool. Thanks for taking the time to talk. Yeah, of course. It was fun. It's fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, share it with your friends, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. Also, I'm open to suggestions for interesting people to interview. So if you know of someone I should talk to, please reach out. You can reach out to me via the email link in the show notes, or you can send a message on Instagram or Facebook with the handle at GoTakePictures. New episodes are on the way soon, and if you subscribe, you'll get them as soon as they drop. But in the meantime, go take pictures.